This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. When have you experienced a discrepancy between a design's intent and its execution? When do you know it's the right time to use homebrew? And how can you build it for your players so it'll add to your game instead of interrupt it? I'm John Tanaka, and these are the questions we're pondering in this episode of Dragon Mind in the Clouds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind in the Clouds, the TTRPG podcast where we discover our best selves through gaming. If you have any insights or questions about today's topic, email us at dragonmindpodcast at gmail.com or post in our discussion channel in the Darkmore Podcast community discord, both linked in the description below. This is the podcast episode where I attack homebrew. Just kidding. Although today's topic is recognizing the discrepancies between a homebrew design's intent and its execution. In a lot of ways, this is a follow-up to the topic we explored a few weeks ago, distorted design, although we'll be approaching it from a different angle today. In distorted design, we discussed how just one element of a game's design can warp the mechanical function and player perception of other choices. For example, if all the monsters your player characters fight in a 5th edition D&D game have really high saving throw bonuses, well, your players may learn or perceive that the optimal strategy is to just hit it really hard with attack rolls. Or, in the case of the Big Bang Theory's Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, Spock, say that five times fast, all the options are in mechanical balance, but one option, the, the flavor of it, is way cooler than the others. One way to think of distorted design is as a specific manifestation of the discrepancy between design intent and reality. I find that for many designers, not just game designers, mind you, there's a danger in selling yourself too much on a particular design, which in turn may blind you to the reality of how it's implemented or how it's going. Let's start with an example of one of the earliest 5th edition campaigns that I was a player in. In this campaign, the GM was using a custom setting with quite a few house rules. Some examples were that potions could be used as a bonus action. Inspirations could be stockpiled up to 5, in which case you had an option to almost limit break like Final Fantasy, where you could use all 5 inspirations at once to gain an extra turn. And, most notably, there were also a lot of hidden extra classes in the game. These extra classes were intended to be discovered by players through social interaction, and would not only reveal additional lore, but grant steady additional options. One of these hidden class options was envisioned as a quote-unquote fix to 5th edition's abysmal 4 elements monk design, and truly make a character feel like the avatar from The Last Airbender. There were a lot of elemental abilities, 
but the one that I remember most clearly was one where a character could use their reaction to stomp on the ground and raise a spike of rock to block, similar to the shield spell. Now saying it out loud and looking back on it, I don't think it was a bad concept. I'm not even sure it was a bad design, but I do remember there being a lot of problems with its implementation. First, the class was given to a player that had a tenuous grasp on the mechanics they were already managing from their base class. Second, the mechanics weren't worded or explained in a way that I remember being consistent with the formatting of the game's rules. Third, none of the rest of us were well-versed enough in the rules as written to translate the GM's intent into language that was easily understood for this player. In one instance, the GM had an enemy spellcaster use fireball on the party. The player was like, oh, I can use that rock reaction, right? To which the GM replied, no, that's only for attacks. And of course, because all of the rules were written in natural language, the player was genuinely confused. They're like, we're being attacked by a fireball, right? And the GM's like, well, no, it's a saving throw, so it's different. All in all, the player only tried to use this custom feature a few times, but ended up feeling defeated every time because it was never the right time. No, you can't use it preemptively because it's a reaction. No, you can't use it now because this isn't an attack. No, you're not in contact with the ground, so the fiction doesn't match what the ability is supposed to do. As much as some gamers may roll their eyes at the idea of tutorial levels or tutorial encounters, I do believe that for new TTRPG mechanics, it does a GM a lot of good, especially in the long run, to design simple, focused encounters that teach players the ropes especially if you're using something that can't be referenced in a book. In the case of this hidden avatar class, the design was well-intentioned, but in reality, the execution doesn't elicit fond memories. This was just one of many examples of homebrew rules I've seen fail at the table. At this time in my D&D journey, I'd tried some of my own as well, including using potions as a bonus action. And for a while, my experience was that homebrew rules and options did more to interrupt games than benefit them. I found that the reason why was simple and logistical. My players each bought the player's handbook. In between turns in combat, they'd look up rules to see how they'd work. Personally, I don't see this as a bad thing. When players would prepare this way, it made their choices pre-set up so that that way in combat, their turns were easier to resolve, it made interactions more enjoyable, it created a culture where if there was a new player at the table, a more experienced player could offer them mechanical advice on the side and help them get a feel for the game. Everyone was on the same page, sometimes literally, and we all had a common resource we were referencing. Now to harp on potions as a bonus action for a second, this is a really popular homebrew rule. I'm also 95% sure that it's the one used in Critical Role, which millions of people watch. But even this one homebrew rules inclusion at the tables I was a part of had a pretty drastic effect when mixed with this particular culture. 
the rule is that a potion can be consumed as a bonus action, but if you're going to give it to somebody else, that requires your action. It seems simple, right? Well, first, for some reason, there would be all sorts of confusion over these conditions. Whenever a player would go to use a potion, we would have to stop the game, clarify in this campaign, yes, you can consume it for yourself as a bonus action. Some players would have to confirm it a few times before they would make their decision, which often wasn't even using a potion. It led to some analysis paralysis. And also, I don't think the GMs that used this rule accounted for what happens when you get really good potions. So when you're getting potions of haste or potions of invisibility, it kind of broke the action economy to let the martial characters use them as bonus actions, have this amazing buff and just go in. It did do a good job of kind of bridging the martial caster divide, but it would take so long for turns to resolve and for players to make simple decisions that I don't think it improved the game overall. That and a lot of players we were playing with would play in multiple games with different GMs. And again, we would have to ask, is this a campaign where this rule applies? Eventually, it just became easier to just make potions in action. And for this reason, for years, I GM'd 5th edition mostly using the rules as written. To loop back to one of our overarching questions at the top of the podcast, when do you know it's the right time to use homebrew? My answer is overly simplistic, but oftentimes misunderstood. When it makes your game better. The reason I say it like this is that I find there are some very loud members of the 5th edition community that assume homebrew makes the game better. And I've got to say, kind of like GMing, it really depends on who you're playing with. Some of my fondest memories of GMing D&D were campaigns that just used the rules as written. Sure, there were lots of times I'd have to make judgment calls or improvise a mechanic, but there weren't extensive homebrew monsters, magic items, or subclasses that I felt like I needed to make my game interesting. In fact, one hot take I remember reading on Reddit was that a lot of GMs include homebrew content as a way to compensate for their insecurity about being able to run an interesting game. If you, as the GM, are not ready to keep track of all of the changes you're making to the game system and think through all of the game balance consequences that will come out of it, homebrew most likely won't improve your game. In fact, I would bet that it would detract from it. So when and why did I start using homebrew? First, at some point, from my perspective, my games started to get boring. I don't think my players would agree with that. But as a GM, what I was noticing is the same class build and strategies were being used at my table over and over again. My players were picking the same spells and the same features, They would show up with characters that had new personalities, but in terms of the gameplay experience, I felt things were getting stale. Second, I really wanted to try a new setting. I saw this massive shift to a new world that my games could take place in as an opportunity to try some homebrew 
that would improve the gameplay and reinforce the tone I wanted from my game. And third, probably most importantly, I had played with the same players for a few years, and I had a good sense of what made them tick. I had a good sense of what kind of questions they'd ask, and I had a lot of successful experiences explaining complex mechanical interactions in a clear way that made everyone feel good about the outcome. I trusted that if I started implementing homebrew rules, when my players had questions, I could explain it in a way we would all be happy about. GMing is more about who you are than what you do. First, when I went to implement homebrew in my latest campaign, the first thing I knew that we needed was an easily accessible reference point, like the player's handbook, that all the players could access at all times, so if there were any questions they wanted to ask, we were all reading the same text. I realized at some point that a lot of my poorer experiences with homebrew stemmed from the fact that the GM just kind of had it all in their head. Whereas the reason that my rules as written games were going well was that all of us were literally on the same page in the same book. So although it would be an additional tab to keep open on a device, when I had a reference document with all of my variant and homebrew rules explained, it allowed my players to prepare for their turns in the same way that they would in a rules as written game. I also want to note that when I tend to integrate homebrew, it revolves around simplifying the game rather than complicating it. For example, readied actions in my games don't need a specified trigger. When you ready an action, you just hold it and you release it with a reaction. Another one is that each character can only cast one leveled spell per turn. No more of those confusing interactions with, I want to quicken this spell, but then cast this spell. Is it a non-cantrip spell that costs an action? Just one leveled spell per turn smoothed everything out, and it also stopped casters from abusing a two-level dip in fighter to get action surge. And finally, we just have an agreement that long rests happen in between sessions rather than in the middle of them. No matter what the rules say, Rather than it being long rest or eight hours or short rest or this much, long rests happen in between sessions, short rests happen in between encounters. That's not to say I have no mechanics that complicate the game. For example, about a year and a half ago, I started using facing from the Dungeon Master's Guide. I've got to say it's made my game a lot more dynamic and enjoyable. By tracking each character's direction and line of sight, it made resolving ambiguous rules a lot easier. There are certain spells that are like, you have to be able to see the creature. Well, if you're tracking facing, you just follow the line of sight. Features like sneak attack and tanking strategies where you try to draw an enemy's attention became more viable. It complicated the game in that there's an additional status for players to track, but overall, it hasn't taken anything away from the game and has added clearer narrative moments. I understand why there's this feeling that homebrew makes games better. My latest game, which is definitely the most enjoyable one I've ever ran, has the most homebrew of any game I've ever participated in. Again, critical role. 
probably the most iconic D&D live play, is well known for their extensive homebrew. But also, potions as a bonus action works for critical role. That doesn't mean it's going to work at every table. So, how do you get started? How do you even know if homebrew is right for your table? When I was considering whether or not homebrew was appropriate at various stages in my DMing journey, the first question I asked myself was, how long have I been GMing and how new are the players? If any of us were beginners, chances were that extensive homebrew modifications to the system were not going to work well for the simple fact that if I as the GM don't have a strong grasp on the far-reaching consequences that a little change can make, I'm probably going to break something without meaning to. Now, assuming we're comfortable with homebrew, the place I've had the most success starting at is with monsters. The usual agreement is that the GM can play with their monster stat block to design the most enjoyable encounter. A great example of this, and I'm going to throw him under the bus a little bit, in one of Ian's earlier Corsara games, he started off with minion creatures that had multi-attack, and it turns out that increased their damage per round significantly. So what he learned was the consequence of having multiple attacks on a creature. Now, because of that, as he continues to design encounters and potentially design other homebrew stuff, he's going to have a better idea of the impact that change is going to have. Along with that, I would also explicitly explain circumstantial rulings to your table. I use this term to denote when we're making a one-time improvised ruling because either the rules as written seem inappropriate or silly, or you just want to try something out. The reason for this is sometimes, especially with newer players, I would see the GM improvise a solution to something, but then the players try to abuse that on-the-spot judgment. Rather, if it's a one-time ruling, you can change it if it leads to a disastrous outcome. If it works really well, you're happy with the outcome, maybe you allow it to happen again and again, you can consider it for a homebrew ruling. But again, if it ends in disaster, you can just say, well, we tried, <laughs> let's move on. It's a great way to safely test some things without feeling like you have to overly commit to them. Next, I would experiment with homebrew magic items. The reason for that is the usual expectation is that magic items exist externally to a player character's main power set. If you design something that's too weak or too powerful, you can always find a story reason to adjust the power level. So for example, spoiler alert, at the beginning of Tears of the Kingdom, the Master Sword gets damaged again. What a shock, and isn't immediately usable at the start of the game. I usually pair this with a candid conversation, being like, I didn't understand plus three to attack and damage rules would be as powerful as it is. Can we adjust it a little and maybe we can go on a quest to make the magic item more powerful later on down the line? And of course, magic items can be stolen. So if something is really too powerful, maybe that'll hook the party into another quest of trying to get back the powerful magic item from a villain. 
when you're confident that you're organized enough and understand the game enough and that your players can handle it, that's when you can introduce broader systematic adjustments and character options like subclasses or lineages. Just remember, your homebrew should enhance the things your table, including you and your players, like about the game and downplay the things you don't. All the while, no matter what leg of your homebrew journey you're on, be ready to kill your darlings. You may have to stop a campaign in the middle of things. You may have to erase a world you've fallen in love with. You're not a failure for that. Design is a process of iteration. I find that GMs suffer the most when they can't seem to let go of an idea they've fallen in love with. I've experienced it many times myself. There is an internal grieving process. Often, an older version of a concept or design has to die for a new one to be born. The best designers I've met are the ones that are willing to try, make mistakes, learn, and try again over and over, faster and faster, until the questions fall away and the answers reveal themselves. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is a proud member of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To discover more TTRPG content like this, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. If you had any insights or questions, be sure to email us at dragonmindpodcast at gmail.com or post in our discussion channel in the Darkmore Podcast community discord, linked in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios. You can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new, unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in arc three of Advantage, a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development in the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app.